This is a Federal News Network podcast. When you say Elon Musk, many think of electric cars or more recently what he's doing with his new company, Twitter. However, SpaceX should be a part of that conversation as well, with the impact it's had on the commercial space industry, accounting for several of NASA's contracts itself. To discuss this trend, I spoke to Caleb Harshberger, who's been covering SpaceX's footprint on the space industry for Bloomberg government. Yeah, I mean, they've had a huge, huge, huge presence in recent years. I mean, they basically upended the whole industry, making launch so affordable and, and making not only the government, but companies realize like, hey, this is something that we can afford to do. And the the benefits are just uh huge and, and growing every day that the industry is changing so much. I know we did um, a story recently just comparing um, the different companies, kind of the top, you know, 10 or so vendors that are doing business with NASA, thinking it would just be kind of a simple, you know, chart that shows, oh, uh, top 10, they're up a little bit, they're up a little bit more. But really, SpaceX came out they had 189 percent growth from 2018 to 2022. And that's, you know, the second place is KBR with 34 percent. It's just they are just taken off <laughs> like few other people are right now. And is it just mostly in those SLS, those space launch systems, that uh, is the reason why they are moving on ahead? Or is there other uh, technologies that they are getting a reputation for <laughs> creating good ones or, or managing them well uh, <laughs> that, that are uh, helping that as well? Yeah, so the, the two big ones I hear a lot about, and that I think we all do now, especially with Ukraine, is their launch um, uh, offerings as well as their Starlink satellites that offer the the internet that um, they're you know we're always reading about with Ukraine but you know they're everywhere they're they can you know put these things up and give internet and broadband to folks who've uh, maybe never had it before or are having trouble getting it right now and they certainly have their competitors they're not the only ones in that space um, but I'd say those are kind of the two big things they're known for. and uh, you know also having the backing of a uh, well-established uh, rich person uh, never hurts either and uh, you know what what I'm curious about um, Mr. Musk's involvement now with SpaceX you know he's been in the news uh, more recently because of his uh, social media investments but um, what uh, what do you sense when you talk to uh, folks from SpaceX do you still get a sense of you know this he's still you know the man behind the with the plan or what else, what's the deal there well um, I'll say that the folks I've talked to, um, uh, they're very focused on, you know, the work they're doing. They're very uh, uh, they want to talk about this is the new tech we're doing. This is the new satellite that we're working on. Um, that's kind of the main thing that they're focused on. The business stuff um, for them is uh, certainly I'm sure it's in their minds. But but what really you know gets them up in the morning is the, the inventions, the innovation, that sort of thing. Yeah, I had to ask. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, as you were talking about these uh, new projects are popping up and SpaceX's satellites are everywhere. Well, oddly enough, uh, everyone's satellites seem to be everywhere. And I've done several interviews in the past on uh, with a couple other, uh, you know, we can call them advocacy groups uh, who are worried about how space, how crowded space is becoming. And it looks like NASA may be seeing that and coming up with new ways to try and get behind that. Uh, what can you tell me about what's being done on the front? Uh, for space traffic management? Yeah, there's been a ton, um, as I'm sure you've seen this year, when it comes to the, the space traffic management. I mean, the SEC last week announced that they're uh, planning to launch the Space Bureau to really examine how many launches they're approving, make sure that um, they're considering this sort of thing as so much goes up. I mean, they used to have uh, uh, 61,000 applications that they're thinking about that they're they're considering for approval. So, I mean, 
space is getting super, super crowded. I mean, then there's everything from uh, new regulations about deorbiting. Once you're done, the, the FCC brought that from 20 years down to five years. You have to deorbit uh, defunct satellites. Uh, and e companies are coming up with all sorts of inventions. Like I just spoke to somebody at Northrop who they have spacecraft with, you know, robotic arms that can grab things that, that shouldn't be there or that need to be moved. And um, this is definitely something everyone's thinking about and that the government definitely seems to be putting money behind to, to incentivize activity for sure. Yeah. Is satellite decommissioning really the probably the best route to go uh, for clearing up some of the congested congestion up there or are they thinking of other approaches? Oh, there's all sorts of approaches. I mean, um, that's kind of the one I hear about the most. One common way is to um, snag a, a, a defunct spacecraft or, or even some debris and drop it into lower, very low orbit where it can burn up in the atmosphere. But um, they're also thinking about things like just making sure we don't put too much up there or, or that when we do, we know where it is and what it's doing and the plan for getting it out of the way when it needs to. So there's there's definitely a few ways that they're trying to, to attack it. But obviously, you know, Everyone's getting in on this, not just America, uh, uh, China, the UK is really pushing launch and their launch capabilities really hard. So it's definitely going to take kind of an international uh, community effort to come together and figure out how, how do we want to tackle this problem? Yeah, it is strange because, you know, growing up, you never really thought too much about the problem because you never thought there's not going to be a time when we can just have several launches in a month and there'll be tons of satellites <laughs> up in the air. But now that's where things stand, apparently. Yeah. And, and um, you know, folks are talking about what's that going to look like from the ground? You know, we can I don't know if you've ever seen the the International uh, Space Station go by at night, but you can see it moving. And so imagine that times, you know, however many thousands, if we're not careful, that could uh, <laughs> that could become a problem. Well, another factor in this, uh, DARPA, uh, oddly enough, has a new project in line of w maybe planning a little bit ahead on where their satellites are going to end up. Um, what uh, what did you find out in that in your reporting? Uh, yeah, so they have a, a few projects um, uh, that they're working on. This latest one that we wrote about is called uh, Daedalus. Um, it's for satellites that are operating in very low Earth orbit. That's between roughly 200 to 400 kilometers um, above the Earth's surface. It's not a hard line. And um, they, they, what they want to do is operate these satellites uh, super low, close to the Earth, so that sensors can analyze the atmosphere or cameras can get closer uh higher quality for less cost images of the ground uh but like you said it's uh tough because you know you're in the atmosphere you need to be constantly you know hitting those thrusters making sure you're still going you're not deorbiting and you're going to be in this orbit where companies are taking their defunct <laughs> space junk to burn up and, and and be decommissioned and, and ultimately be destroyed in the atmosphere so they're trying to figure out you know can we operate in this this you know satellite uh, uh graveyard i guess um just logistically is that even possible from a technological standpoint but also once we're there how do we navigate in this kind of dangerous orbit i i suppose um where you know things are burning up and, and folks are getting rid of their space job yeah, it seems as if this topic is getting more and more momentum. And I'm not just saying that just because you have some articles written about it recently. You know, like I said, I've, I've been talking to a few folks, um, you know, over the last year or so um, that are, are concerned about that. And it, I guess how concerned are, are you as a as a reporter of the space industry? Uh, what, what would you say is gauging the problem? 
Uh, well, it's been great to see that that folks are really uh, investing heavily in this area, and that you know the SEC has been making all these moves, NASA has been making all these moves, DARPA. Uh, there's definitely a ton of interest in um, approaching it and tackling the the topic. I think when I first started covering it, my concern was that nobody would be interested in this, that there wouldn't be a lot of money incentivizing activity, but that doesn't seem to be the case. So um, <laughs> I think everybody's also incentivized in that if there's too much junk up there, it will become unusable. You know, scientists talk of this thing called the Kessler syndrome, where um, there's too much going on up there, collisions beget more debris, which begets more collisions. And at a certain point, you, uh, you end up with orbit so full of stuff that Nobody can go up there, and that means nobody's making money and nobody's doing the work that they that they set out to do. The the capabilities that are in space are things that you know everybody just deals with on an everyday basis. It's internet, it's you know television, phones, uh, uh, GPS is a huge one that's that's pretty vulnerable that they're working on replacing. It's just the the everyday capabilities that space gives us. And if for some reason, whether it's space junk or or uh, uh, somebody shooting missiles into orbit, uh, that stuff could go away. It, it is, you know, within the realm of possibility and uh, a lot more might go away than people realize. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, 
um, I didn't I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially my younger self um, 
advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups, you might get this experience. But really, where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, 
and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure experience and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career perfect well thank you sasha and thanks to everyone for listening i'm shane canfield and this has been the lessons in leadership podcast talk to you next time